0: Will be doing his presentation on the Philosophical Academy and the Early Church, Part Two. And I said this last night. If you were not here last year, I highly recommend that you. Uh, we have all the materials out there in this the alcove um, in the gallery, syllabus book. CDs, thumb drive, we have it all out there. I would I would get everything you can before you leave here and uh, and be a recipient of the blessing that took place here last year, but he's going to be giving part two this morning. And then we do have uh, about a six or a seven hour break, and then we are going to be having just a good old-fashioned, Apostolic Pentecostal Church Service at Cornerstone Pentecostal Church in Liberty Lake. Oh yes. And Brother Doug Walker will be preaching and it will be tremendous. Tremendous.
1: Our first presenter this morning will be Reverend Caleb Adams. Uh, Reverend Adams received his call into the ministry at the young age of 14. Currently he serves as the pastor of Christian Life Tabernacle in Memphis, Tennessee. As a strong advocate of biblical preaching, personal evangelism, and revival, he has led Christian Life Tabernacle through steady growth since the year of 2005. Reverend Adams obtained a Master of Arts and Christian Ministry from Hope International University. In addition to his pastorate, Reverend Adams serves on the advisory boards of other churches and global missions works and frequently speaks at national and international church conferences, camps, and rallies. Please welcome Reverend Caleb Adams this morning.
2: Thank you, Brother Elder, and good morning, everybody. It is an honor to be here uh, today and to participate again in this year's symposium. And I want to say a great big thank you to Pastor Mayo for his vision. And burden for this uh, setting, and also to Cornerstone Church. My God, goodness, you guys have forevermore uh, went out of your way to show hospitality, and I know there's a tremendous amount of work and support staff that goes on making this venue possible, and I applaud your efforts. I want to um, also mention that I have tremendously enjoyed each of the contributors. Uh, that I've been able to hear thus far this week, and we've, we have uh, been challenged, our thinking has been expanded, and the doctrine is getting nailed down, and I thank God for it. And I'm also looking forward to uh, Dr. Painter, who'll be following, and we're going to wrap this up tonight. Uh, Brother Doug Walker will be preaching, and it's gonna be forever more good. Well, today I'm going to be covering the subject of the role of doctrine, tradition, and preferences in shaping Pentecostal orthopraxy. And let me just say before we delve into this, uh, it is impossible to do this subject justice within the time and space constraints that we face in a setting like this. And so it's my hope that that at the least this discussion today will open up a broader discussion on what I feel is a very, very important subject for us as Pentecostals to uh, think about and probe at a deeper level. So let's begin. This work will explore the role of doctrine, traditions, and personal preferences in shaping the orthopraxy of the Pentecostal church. The power of theology to transform and guide one's life hinges on the ability and willingness to correctly apply scriptures to -to day-to-day living. Bible-believing Christians strongly believe that the scriptures show the way to be saved and provide practical guidance for holiness. The Bible contains spiritual realities that bless those who embrace and act upon them. However, the theological truths of the scripture, powerful as they are, cannot impact the life until one brings them out of the abstract realm of the invisible and into proper practical application. The word must be manifested in the daily beliefs and action of the individual Christian. It is the premise of this work that the word shapes the believer's practice through doctrine, traditions, and personal preferences. The latter of these forces, tradition and personal preferences, spring from human behavior. And as such, they constantly attempt to usurp the primacy of doctrine. If traditions or preferences supersede doctrine to become the primary guide, For individuals' beliefs and practices, division in the body of Christ and doctrinal error will eventually occur. But when doctrine stands paramount and provides the underlying principles behind church traditions and personal preferences, these traditions and preferences can be a source of blessing and unity. So let's talk about some of the determinative factors that shape our practices The practices, customs, and culture of oneness Pentecostals derive from an amalgamation of doctrines, traditions, and the preferences of local church leadership. Believers should uh, view all of these influences on a continuum, and I'd like them to put up slide number one at this point. And uh, what we see here on this continuum, on the left-hand side, uh, where it's the widest, and it's, it's where the doctrinal base is. And as we move along this continuum, it becomes slender the further out we get from the doctrinal base and more flexible towards the right-hand side. So we have doctrine on the left that is uh, firm and inflexible. We have traditions that are in the middle. And we have uh, personal preferences on the far right. And I'm going to probe each one of these uh, at, at, in somewhat depth today. The essential doctrines, those beliefs and practices explicitly stated in Scripture to be embraced by all Pentecostals, regardless of cultural context, should be the primary guide of Pentecostal practice. Examples of essential doctrines include the oneness of God, repentance, Jesus' name, water baptism, spirit baptism, speaking in tongues, the rapture of the church, and holiness. Traditions and practices shared by most Pentecostals fall in the middle of the continuum. Examples include shared standards of modesty, two services on Sunday, midweek Bible study, dressing up for church, the structure of the public worship service, and clean-shaven faces for men. These traditions do not stem from explicit scriptural directives, but rather from a group effort to apply biblical principles to present-day realities. This makes the traditions somewhat more flexible than doctrine. Personal preferences of individual leaders also influence our Pentecostal practice. These highly localized practices often stem from a leader's effort to apply a broad scriptural principle to the local context in a very specific way. So let's talk about uh, each of these in a little more depth, starting with doctrine. Strong's Concordance defines doctrine as the teachings, instruction, and precepts. Used in a biblical context, doctrine covers the gamut of theology found in the Bible, which is the ultimate source of doctrine regarding God, salvation, the church, the individual, and Christian living. Many factors may influence one's belief system, our upbringing, our family system, the culture in which we live, Education, religious background, biblical studies, etc. However, scripture must hold primacy when it comes to doctrine. The Bible alone is the immutable, unerring, and final authority on all matters pertaining to theology. Since God and his word are one, doctrine is the essence of God. When one receives doctrinal teaching from the Bible, he or she embraces God himself. By living one's doctrine through daily practice, God is expressed to the world. Doctrine permanently fuses the church body with Christ the head. Humans can only achieve godliness and holiness to the extent that the individual incorporates the doctrines of scripture into belief and actions. Doctrine deserves primacy among the factors that shape the orthopraxy of the church because it is one with the word which is firmly fixed. Doctrine flows from scriptural realities that transcend time, cultures, and human contexts. Today's Pentecostals read the same verses that first century Christians read. The same doctrine applies from Hong Kong to Manhattan, from the Amazon to the Serengeti Plains. While apostolic preachers present doctrine in different contexts, the word will lead all people and groups to the same basic beliefs regarding God, salvation, and godly living. Now, doctrinal positions ultimately express themselves through daily actions. What one believes determines what one does. Orthopraxy flows out of orthodoxy. Along with the belief in one God come heartfelt expressions of praise and a rejection of the countless little gods of the world. Belief in biblical sexuality causes us to limit sexual activity to the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Belief in the fruit of the Spirit filters both the words we speak and the tone with which we speak those words. Belief in the imminent return of Christ leads to circumspect behaviors. Many other illustrations show that every, and I want to underscore this, every doctrinal position we hold connects to a corresponding action or expression through our actions. What you believe affects the way that you live. This connection underscores the importance we must place on being doctrinal, doctrinally correct, compromise, ignorance, And other forms of theological sloppiness will always produce a lifestyle far removed from biblical ideals, whereas pure doctrine will produce godliness. But doctrine in its raw form is abstract. It does not gain the power to impart life and shape our practices until we embrace it and apply it. Many apostolic churches share global consensus on core biblical doctrines, however the application of those doctrines are not consistent. When doctrine steps from its theological cloud onto the dirt of human experience, its boots rarely find even ground. The practice of doctrine has been enculturated into the various eras and contexts, thus varying somewhat in application. Apostolics who believe and embrace the same doctrine often differ in the ways that they practice these doctrines. The application of a doctrine within a specific context or people group often standardizes itself into a religious tradition. And so now at this point we are going to we're going to flow on the continuum from the doctrinal base and we're going to move to the middle section and discuss the role of tradition. And as I will reiterate a couple of times in this presentation, it is not always easy to determine where the doctrine stops and tradition starts because there is somewhat of an overlap uh, between the two. Uh, But there is a difference. And so let's, let's probe this uh, uh, in a little more depth here. Traditions. How do believers live out doctrinal realities? Through religious traditions, practices, customs, and ceremonies. These traditions give meaning to real-life experiences by tethering them To invisible spiritual realities, tradition is closely connected to doctrine, but with some notable differences. Doctrine is the spiritual reality, whereas tradition expresses the reality within a specific context or people group. Bible doctrine does not change, whereas many traditions are fluid. Traditions often span multiple generations and give present-day adherents both a sense of connectivity to the past and a sense of belonging to a larger people group. Author Thomas Green, in his book Folklore, did an excellent job uh, defining the role of traditions within a religious movement, and he defines traditions this way. It is a set of cultural ideals regarded as a coherent unit in which past ideals influence the present patterns of behavior in the group, and it's a recognized set of practices with origins in the past or a set of practices created in the past that are purposefully maintained by the group in the present. Religious traditions, when properly formed in practice, link a belief system to that of bygone generations as well as to the beliefs of our contemporaries within the same people group. Traditions enculturate biblical ideals into real life and provide the structure to preserve these ideals and to transfer them to the next generation. Pentecostal people deeply appreciate And fervently embrace a wide array of traditions, ranging from worship styles to standards of holiness and conduct. These traditions link individual Pentecostals to the larger Pentecostal community and give them distinction in an era largely defined by religious pluralism. As such, traditions should be cherished and preserved by Pentecostals everywhere and let me just interject at this point it is my conviction that our default position regarding any of our Pentecostal traditions should be that of a preservationist not of a reformer there are times when a tradition needs to be changed and things do need to be reformed and we'll discuss that a little bit later but the default position needs to be one to preserve traditions not not one to try to overthrow anything that we feel should be in the tradition column let's give a little discussion here on how a tradition originates pentecostal traditions frequently spring from the good faith effort of church leaders to apply biblical principles to present-day situations When establishing a tradition, church leaders should ask themselves several questions. What does the Holy Ghost direct? What do other ministry leaders think? And can others be expected to follow these procedures? The First Jerusalem Council considered each of these factors in the book of Acts. We read about it in chapter 15 of Acts. When deciding to what extent Gentile converts were obligated to keep the law of Moses, the apostles came to this conclusion, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Their prayerful collaboration enabled them to establish a common tradition that all of the churches in their day would practice. Now, while today's Pentecostals are very far removed from the Jew-Gentile debates that plagued the first century church, we do face more than our fair share of debates about how the church should apply biblical principles today. Many disputes between individual church leaders organizations and fellowships and so on, many of these disputes could be resolved if we could work together to hammer out some traditions that are based on some common ideals and practices. Traditions often originate when church leaders give specific definition to a scriptural concept. For example, Paul admonished that women should wear modest clothing. However, he did not offer details on exactly what modesty looks like in real life. Left to individual interpretation, different definitions of modesty have arisen. A lady from one church may feel modest wearing a skirt falling just below the knee. Whereas someone from a different setting may insist that only a floor-length skirt would satisfy the scriptural directive regarding modesty. Therefore, Pentecostal leaders have recognized the need to establish a standard of modesty that is acceptable across geographical and cultural lines. For many Pentecostal groups, the traditional standard of modesty Involves a skirt below the knee and sleeves below the elbow. Other groups carry the tradition further, placing the standard of modesty at the ankle and the wrist. In this case, modesty is the doctrine, but tradition defines the actual standard. The doctrine of modesty is non-negotiable. Whereas the traditional practice of modesty varies somewhat from group to group. In many cases, there are further variances within the same group due to the personal preferences of the individual pastors who identify with the group. So let's take a moment and give some discussion to the role of of the preference of church leadership in determining our practices. Personal preferences are highly localized practices initiated by individual leaders' efforts to apply biblical concepts to the operation and flow of the local church. These preferences may range from proper attire to wear on the platform during service, like some people have a white shirt policy on the platform. Uh, Others uh, ask the ladies to wear hose. Or, or in the case of our church back home, we ask the men to wear a suit jacket uh, when they're participating on the platform. Uh, other examples of preferences would be music styles. Uh, some churches uh, lean towards black gospel. Others are highly contemporary in the music, while still others uh, prefer to the southern gospel style. Other preferences may involve the pastor's judgments in matters of present distress. A matter of present distress is when a situation presents itself and there is no clear corresponding situation in the New Testament. So the leader is left to take the principles that he finds in the New Testament and make a good faith effort to apply those principles to to what is happening in a a time of current distress. Uh, Paul dealt with this in uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he lets us know that these preferences are not arbitrary. As leaders typically rely, and this is a key here, When a leader is implementing a preference on the practice of a church, there does need to be an overarching scriptural principle that guides this preference. A pastor is not given the liberty to hole up in his office and simply invent at random a bunch of arbitrary ideals, practices, and guidelines that aren't in some way connected to an overarching scriptural principle. Preferences that adhere close to a key biblical principle carry more weight. However, preferences that are connected to an important principle only distantly or tangentially become more flexible. Uh, For example, I'll give a personal illustration here. At our church at home, we collect or tithe and offering on Sunday morning. Uh, this does fall close to a Bible example because Paul told the Corinthian church to bring their uh, offerings on the Lord's Day. But there's not any scriptural directive that says which service or which day of the week the tithes and offerings need to be collected other than that one mention of how they did it at Corinth. And so uh, we, our practice is to do it there that's not a doctrine uh, it may not even be a tradition that all the churches share but that's when we do it at our church uh, but we do have some scriptural precedent that, that the offerings were collected on Sunday morning another preference that I have requested of our church is that nobody chew gum during church in my personal opinion, chewing gum during church is uh, very casual and it's an expression of irreverence to the moment. However, my preference or the no chewing gum policy during church is not a matter of doctrine and I don't teach it as such. This is my preference and, and, and when I present it to our church, I do that as simply a preference. The Apostle Paul illustrated the exercise of personal preference when he set guidelines for the Corinthians to curb what was an epidemic of fornication within the church. Paul, in chapter 7 of Corinthians, addressed conjugal rights within marriage, marriages of believers to non-believers, and his wish for unmarried people to remain single. Two statements deserve particular attention in this passage. Paul wrote, first of all, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. And the other statement that is noteworthy, he said, to the rest, speak I and not the Lord. These statements tell us a couple things regarding pastoral preferences. First, Paul is operating within his scope of authority to set policy and procedure regarding matters that directly impact the local church. Sometimes pastors must make judgment calls on matters that are not specifically addressed by a biblical directive. And when he does so, the local church must honor policies and procedures derived from these judgment calls. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said to follow me as I follow Christ, and in Hebrews 13, he reiterated that we are to obey them that have the rule over you. And so, as members of a local church, we should never view the preferences of the pastor as something that's just optional or something that we, at whim, a will or whim, can just brush to a side. We need to follow those preferences, and we need to respect them. But at the same time, we need to appreciate the fact that there is a difference between a preference and a doctrine. The second observation regarding Paul's statement is this Paul's statement reveals that leadership should inform the local assembly that some practices are matters of personal preferences rather than doctrine or even widely accepted tradition. Policies and procedures derive from the personal preferences of the pastor are important to the order and daily flow of the assembly, the schedule of services, administration of funds, and determination of proper decorum. All of these are essential matters, and they all flow from the pastor's personal preference. If a pastor is forbidden to exert any form of personal preference on the order and operations of the church, chaos will ensue. And the congregation will lose momentum. However, it must be reiterated that preferences not tied to a specific biblical principle should be more flexible. Individual leaders should have enough humility to say along with Paul, so speak I and not the Lord, when expressing some of their own preferences. And ministry peers should allow each other tolerance and flexibility when dealing with matters of personal preferences. At this time, I'd like him to put up slide number two on the screen. And I've taken uh, just from my own thoughts and opinions to try to categorize some of our beliefs and practices on this continuum. We have three columns here on the chart, one for doctrine, one for tradition, and the other for personal preference. As I've already mentioned, the doctrine is absolute, there is no tolerance, uh, there is no variance to doctrine, uh, whereas personal preferences are somewhat more flexible in traditions in the middle. So in the doctrine column, we would have teachings like oneness, the new birth, atonement, rapture of the church, holiness, speaking in tongues as the initial evidence of receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And for these ideals and these beliefs there is no wiggle room whatsoever. They simply are what they are. But In the tradition column, and by putting these things in these columns, in no way am I denigrating them, in no way am I cheapening or minimizing their value and importance, but I think it's proper to categorize them here would be having two services on Sunday. Some groups feel very strongly about the Sunday night church service. Whereas, uh, and that's usually just an American thing, uh, around the world, Sunday morning only is a pretty common custom and tradition. Uh, it is our custom as Western and Western civilization to dress up when we go to church. That's not explicit doctrine it's a tradition the format of our services and clean-shaven faces on men are a tradition that is widely embraced by apostolic people and specific modesty guidelines another tradition that at one point in, in my lifetime was a tradition that was very uh, firmly held to was singing from hymnals during the service. Can you guys remember that? When I was growing up, uh, they always gave opportunity to request two songs, number 300, and singing to the Lord hymn that was Oh, I want to see him. And, and uh, we, uh, we did that. And I remember when churches started going to projecting lyrics on screens, and people were appalled. They were absolutely appalled, and there was a tremendous resistance to that. Now I challenge you to find the hymnal anywhere. Um, oh. <laughs> see, see. <laughs> we're, in, we're in trouble now. In the personal preference column are things like music styles, service schedules, A lot of churches have a Wednesday night Bible study, but some do Tuesday and Thursday. Platform attire, local church policy, things like dating rules, um, administration of funds, and proper decorum in the service. Now the doctrinal practices, as I've already mentioned, are absolute and non-negotiable. Matters of preference are flexible. The authority... And scope of a given practice diminishes and its flexibility increases the further it moves from a doctrinal base. The Pentecostals have historically struggled to properly categorize practices in this continuum. Often elevating traditions and preferences to an absolute inflexible doctrinal status. And in other cases, essential doctrines are downgraded to become optional. And it must be noted again that it's not always easy to place a given belief or practice on the proper place on the continuum because there is somewhat of an overlap there. But when doctrine and traditions and personal preferences are confused, extreme dysfunction always occurs. Jesus stated, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And again, you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And if we would be real honest with ourselves today, we would have to admit that a lot of the divisions that we currently grapple with in the apostolic ranks are not divisions over doctrines, but the traditions and preferences that are different from different groups and different fellowships that, that we value very much. These are the area where a lot of our division occurs. And so it's important for us to be able to keep these things in perspective. At this point, I'd like to put up slide number three. I want to talk to you about five indicators that could suggest that we have lost proper perspective on tradition and preferences. The first indicator that perspective is lost is this. is an inability to categorize which practices are doctrine and which are matters of tradition or preference. Second, preferences take on an inflexible quality. Third, Tradition and preferences are presented with the same authority used to promulgate essential doctrines. One elder told me when I was a little younger, he said, Don't preach everything using your Acts 238 voice. I preach Acts 238 with one voice, but when I talk about chewing gum... I preach it with a different voice because they are not in the same category. But we have a problem when we lift our preference to be on equal plane with the immutable doctrines of Scripture. The fourth indicator that we're losing perspective is this, is when fellowship with other churches is broken over matters of preference or variance in traditions... Like one church that I'm acquainted with here in the great Northwest that broke fellowship with other Northwestern churches because other churches, the ladies wore hair bows and this particular church did not. And, and that was a justifiable reason to break fellowship. The hair bow is fine for a preference but that should not be a reason to break fellowship with other good apostolic people. And fifth of all, The circle of fellowship diminishes over time because, in your opinion, so many other churches are doing things wrong. And if we allow that to go to its furthest extent, it becomes ours for and no more. All of these are indicators that we're losing perspective of the continuum. All of the above actions reflect a skewed perspective of traditions and preferences. Traditions and preferences that should be a source of blessing and unity become instruments of contention and control. This shift stems from the fact that traditions and preferences are largely homocentric. One's fallen human nature never stops seeking a place of supremacy over God and his or her fellow man. In some cases, this has resulted in Pentecostal churches taking on a cult-like quality as the personal preferences of the leader rise to the same level as the doctrines of the Bible. And so now let's step out into an area where angels fear to tread. When should a practice be changed? Some Pentecostal practices are not rooted in any clear biblical precept. At best, these extra-biblical practices become untenable in modern times. At worst, they contradict the Bible and become a hindrance to the well-being of the church. Several traditions that have been re-examined over the last two decades are this. Extended revival services each night of the week. Does anybody remember those days? Seven nights a week of revival services. When I started in ministry, this was quite common. Fellowship meetings, where a lot of churches would get together, and in that fellowship meeting, everybody that was a preacher or thought they wanted to be a preacher someday was given the microphone and given the chance to deliver a three-minute message. If you've... Not had to endure one of those, God bless you. (laughs) Segregated men's and women's altar areas, particularly uh, common in southern churches. The men and women on one side, and that, in some circles, that's a hard and fast uh, tradition. The prohibition of all forms of video technology and use of the internet. When I started the ministry, video was such a hot-button issue, if, if people recorded moving pictures for personal use of any sort whatsoever, that was justifiable grounds for disfellowshipping in a lot of circles. Steve Jobs and the iPhone changed all that, and that tradition, for the most part, has fallen by the wayside. Singing from hymnals, but the Bose Church still does it. Um, Just sometimes. (laughs) But once again, that has become a dying tradition. These are just a few examples of practices gradually abandoned as the times continue to change. In each of the above cases, change was warranted by the practical needs of modern times and the move would not violate any biblical principle. However, in some cases, Pentecostal circles have adopted unspoken non-biblical traditions that have hindered the growth and the development of their constituents. Some examples of these include... The prohibition of interracial marriage, racially segregated churches, this is particularly more common in the southern United States, and actively discouraging church members from pursuing higher education. And on the darkest side of this is the idea that church leaders are above the law. These are all very real customs, traditions, and ideologies that to some extent still proliferate within certain fellowship groups. These non-biblical traditions have become silent realities in far too many cases. When such practices proliferate within a church culture... They have a way of bringing all practices into question, even the legitimate ones. Unfortunately, many individuals have overreacted to these negative practices, and they've tried to correct the problem by challenging any practices that stem from a tradition or a personal preference. This so-called sola scriptura crowd... Smugly remind all who will listen, you don't have chapter and verse for that. These zealots self appoint themselves as God ordained leaders of a cultural shift within the greater apostolic movement in an effort to overthrow time honored traditions. These overreactors need to slow down and evaluate their actions. While some traditions and personal preferences have impeded progress or have become irrelevant to modern times, we need to emphasize here extreme care must be taken before abandoning traditions or dismissing the preferences of leaders which often draw on doctrinal precepts. Because when pulling out the thread of tradition we may just unravel the doctrine that inspired the tradition in the first place. So when evaluating whether a tradition or preference should be changed or abandoned, there are some, some legitimate and practical questions that we need to ask ourselves. Let's go to slide number four. First question is, where did the tradition or preference originate and who started it? Before you get rid of it or challenge it, take some time to learn the reason behind that tradition to start with. Because when understanding why the elders implemented certain customs and traditions, it oftentimes gives us a different perspective than the perspective that we get from disgruntled people who are just chafing at any and all restrictions. Second question is, what biblical precept does the given tradition seek to apply? Most of our Pentecostal traditions are there because there was some overarching precept that was the impetus behind it. And we need to be able to draw the original connection between the precept and the tradition. Third, does this preference... Promote unity among Pentecostals. If we have a practice or a tradition that makes it where we can't fellowship with anybody, there's a good chance that practice or tradition may be off base. Does a tradition bring blessing to the people? Fifth, what is the true motive for eliminating the preference? Is it one of wanting to please God? Walk in holiness, the fear of God? Or is it a motive of pride? And perhaps most important question to ask is, do a significant number of recognized leaders in the movement agree that the given tradition should be questioned? Careful and prayerful consideration to these questions will often reveal that the problem is not the tradition or the personal preference in question, but instead a prideful feeling of superiority. That said, some traditions need to be changed or discarded due to either biblical inaccuracy or irrelevance to modern times. In such cases, wise leader will move slowly and make the issue a matter of much prayer and seek the consensus of other leaders. In conclusion, it's hoped that the subject matter presented here will give us a renewed appreciation for the role of doctrine, traditions, and preferences in shaping our Pentecostal culture. Considering these factors in the context of a continuum, I believe they can be a source of blessing to our movement. On the other hand, if we allow preferences and traditions to supersede doctrine... Uh, They will result in error. When leaders hold the doctrine, traditions, and personal preferences in a continuum, it will guide our practices in a way that pleases the Lord and exercises charity towards those who differ in non-essentials.
1: Presentation. Thank you, Pastor. Well, <laughs> this is going to be a free-for-all, I can tell already. <laughs> Maybe we better pray about this. <laughs> Again, we need to remind you that we're going to try our best to get to as many want to speak this morning. Can you hold your questions to around 60 seconds? I mean real close to 60 seconds if possible and let's remain courteous and keep it applicable to the presentation. Since he's the one that's the host of this we'll start out with Pastor Mayo.
0: Thank you. Brother Adams, I want to congratulate you on a phenomenal presentation, phenomenal. Thank you. Additionally, I'd like to add that this is a presentation that is way overdue, Yes. is way overdue. I couldn't help but note in your um, very scholarly and in some way delicate approach to this because of the subject matter, Um, But I have a question here. Could tradition in one sense be defined as already being brought up to the level of doctrine by some groups if it is practiced generationally? And then when doctrine is introduced to challenge that tradition, they are given the choice to either accept the doctrinal precept or continue with their tradition. Your thoughts on that?
2: I don't think I can answer true or false. I think I'd have to say it depends. Um, a tradition for it to be a tradition, it's you can make a case that it has to bridge generational uh, lines. And so uh, if I understand the correct the, the question correctly is if we have brought a tradition over multiple generations, does that by itself mean, tradition has become doctrinal. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'll, I'll step out in a very delicate area here and, and bring an issue up that is, has widespread discussion amongst the Apostolic ranks right now. And that's the idea of facial hair on men. In my lifetime and probably going back two or three generations the by and large accepted Apostolic custom has been clean shaven faces for men. And that's something that I strongly preach and teach uh, in our local church. We don't do facial hair, and we're not gonna do facial hair. But in preaching and teaching it, I'm careful to teach to the church this is not something that we teach because there are specific biblical directives here, but this is a custom and a tradition. The apostolic forefathers hammered out and I believe they had good reason to hammer it out and we're not going to be the one to change that uh, and I personally feel comfortable with teaching it as a tradition and not a doctrine but a tradition we're just we're just going to follow and I don't know if that satisfies the question or not but... <laughs> I
1: might add that in context of facial hair the last president of the United States that had facial hair was like a... It was President McKinney, which was over 100 years ago. So there are psychological aspects to that as well. Pastor Bo.
3: Excellent job, Reverend. Amen. Excellent. And I will say publicly what I've said to you in private. Caleb Adams is one of my favorite people to listen to and his writing is some of my favorite writings and I want him to publish more of what he writes. And He knows that I've told him that. I have a comment and a question. My comment is concerning the tradition versus uh, church authority, and it's just a recommendation. Uh, There's an 11-volume set called The Story of Civilization by Will Durant. And uh, Will Durant was a very unknown writer and Simon & Schuster published his works he determined he would do one volume every five years, and he did for the next 55 years. Uh, about volume three or four, somewhere in there, I'm not sure, his wife Ariel began to help him. So one of these volumes is a volume on Voltaire and the incredible time period that Voltaire represented, the fall of France, all of that. Um, so in the envoy of that book, there is this created discussion between Pope Benedict and Voltaire and I would just highly recommend anyone reading it, even though it's not doctrinal, it shows the value of what tradition does and upholds a society. And in the conclusion of it, Pope Benedict reminds Voltaire, you better be careful what brick you remove, lest the wall come tumbling down. And he uses the French Revolution as an example. So just to support the evidence of the importance of tradition, very good reading. Uh, My question is, We find in the Bible verses that have secondary and tertiary meanings at times. And I'm going to give you one example, and then this is what I'd like to ask you. Uh, On the subject of, I believe it's in Hosea, where he says, I called my son out of Egypt. Now, we know that that's the prophetic voice saying Israel was called out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. There's no inference there, none whatsoever to Jesus Christ coming out of Egypt, and yet Matthew picks that up, uses that verse, and quotes that to defend Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt and then bringing him out. All right, There's a, there, that's an actual case of a secondary meaning yes. that we don't read in the primary writing. I believe there are also times there are tertiary meanings. Now, my question to you is, how do you know doctrinally when there is a secondary or tertiary meaning? To a scripture.
2: Well, doctrinally, I think I, th- I think we only know that in cases where the Bible says that. And so, my feelings are for something to be placed hard and fast in the category of a type or shadow. The scripture needs to make that connection. Now, there are probably types and shadows that are part of that. If the Bible doesn't explicitly state and tell us that it is, I don't know that we need to make a hard and fast position that it is. We can probably um, we'll probably take most of the New Testament scriptures and from these scriptures derive principles uh, that we would we would find the secondary application uh, to the principle. But I don't know that we need to do that at a doctrinal level when, when the Bible doesn't do it. That, does that make sense? And so in the case of uh, Jesus as the Son of God retracing the footsteps of Israel, the corporate Son of God, the Bible makes that connection. And so we can, we can easily say that uh, where the f- corporate Son failed, Jesus the begotten Son completely succeeded Uh, they went to the wilderness he went to the wilderness they were tempted in the wilderness three major temptations and he had three major temptations to overcome and so on Um, so that's a good question Dr. Blash
4: Um, Daniel Blash, St. Louis, Missouri I want to echo what everybody else has said Um, brilliant topic so well done Um, and timely so timely I want to look at your topic through the lens of multiculturalism Mm -hmm. or um, ethnic racial diversity Um, and I want to go back to facial hair only because it's being recorded I'll qualify well clearly I'm clean-shaven and it's also the preference in our church And I also teach it the way you described it. Um, So that was excellent validation. Um, However, um, I teach it as a tradition. I guess the question, or maybe the the comment, is in your writing, um, you talked about those traditions being formed through culture and what's happening in the times, so historically, et cetera. When I've heard people talk about facial hair, it's typically focused on the 60s and 50s and connected to rebellion. Um, If you think about the black community and those people who would be social justice activists, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people like uh, Louis Farrakhan, Black Panthers, Martin Luther King Jr., By and large, these are clean-shaven people. So, uh, or maybe a mustache. But the Black Panthers, Google it, many of them very clean-shaven. So in the black community, the facial hair was not so much the symbol of rebellion. So as we bring in more cultures into the church, we have to grapple with the fact that that notion of talking about facial hair as a point of Civil rebellion fits the white community of America way better than the black community of America and makes absolutely no sense to our people. Um, and then you get in more trouble if you try and use the scripture because it's absolutely just, uh, they just, I don't do it. I just don't do it. Yeah. Um, I, I go with a couple of things um, tradition, uh, fellowship, and I use my military experience and I say when I signed up, they said this is what you're gonna do and this is why you're gonna do it. And everyone said, okay, that's fine. So if we do that for the military, then let's not give the church a big problem about a preference. However, I think it's really important as we think about multiculturalism to really look at um, some of these issues. So if I could, I'm at my 60 second limit, so I'll go really quickly. The slide that you have that talked about the places <coughs> where to perhaps rethink tradition. If I could go back to that slide, slide for-
2: th- two, I believe.
4: Okay. Not that one. Okay, then that will be slide uh, number four. So, if I would go back, number one, where did the tradition of preference originate, who started, I would say my, my from what I've been taught or heard, I would say facial hair, probably the white community, probably somewhere, certainly not at the beginning of Pentecost, but somewhere in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, What biblical precedent does tradition seek to apply? That's probably around rebellion and things of that nature. Um, So that's important. Does the preference promote unity among Pentecostals, uh, amongst white Pentecostals? So that's gonna be a question. See, that's gonna be an issue there a little bit. Does the tradition bring blessings to people? It depends. Um, what is the true motive for eliminating the preference? In my case, I would argue it would be diversity um, or thinking about other ethnic groups and do a significant number of recognized leaders recognize in the movement that tradition would be questioned. I think that's going to be a hard one to grapple against because you're dealing with multicultural. So I don't want to, I'm with you. Um, I want to have the conversation but I don't want to change the tradition I do want to broaden the scope of the conversation in terms of multiculturalism I guess my comment really is the cultures that created what we now know as Apostolic Church the Apostolic Church is very different culturally the traditions however still represent kind of that first group and what do we think about that and how do we address that
2: yeah that's a great question and it's one that I have uh, I have molded this particular question probably two thousand times and spent many, many hours. And ultimately, members of different fellowship groups would answer all those questions a little bit differently. And I can't answer it based on other groups, because I'm not part of that group. My, my world is, is, I don't like to think of it as a white world. I like to think of it more on the standpoint of a, more of a conservative, holiness-minded group. And I know that some ethnic groups, I won't call any names, but uh, many of them are known for their Extreme worldliness, doctrinal drift, uh, Pentecostal assemblies of the world, to name one, uh, have started uh, associating with Trinitarians, and that, thats not the group I'm a part of. And so, so when I, in my world, when I view leaders in a particular group that are known for being uh, very uh, edgy. Uh, in in many other areas of truth in scripture I have a hard time accepting what they're uh, telling me on any area of of holiness and their elders I don't look at as being my elders and I know it's painting with a broad brush and would be unfairly categorizing some of the good men who are in that group so um, uh, you agree with you that the beard and the mustache as a whole is not a symbol of rebellion in our modern times. And to try to make that a hard and fast case, uh, it simply doesn't work. And we just can't be honest with that, especially when we're applying it across cultural lines. So that's where I come back from the uh, moral position, because we have many ethnicities in our church, And we're trending more and more multicultural all the time. And I have to cross this bridge several times a year in uh, personal discussions with with people. And my take is, look, we have a kingdom culture that that in our circles, in our fellowship, it's clean-shaven. I can't speak for every other fellowship in the world. Some of them may not embrace that. But our, our group does. And this is one thing that is important to us to preserve unity and harmony within our circle of fellowship. Uh, had a missionary from the country of India, and he is a man, if I've called his name, many of us would recognize and all of us would respect. And he's done a tremendous work there. He mentioned the men in India wear mustaches because he said in his part of the country, his report was... To shave your mustache is a public sign of being a homosexual. And I said, well, if I live where you live, I'd probably have a mustache. <laughs> but, but in America, that, that is not the case. And so I have to pastor on the culture that I live in and within the church culture that I'm a part of. And that's a very ambiguous answer, but it's the best I've been able to come up with. It's a great question, and I can't, I can't arrive at any answer that totally satisfies me.
5: Brother Haddon. Brother Adams, thank you so much for... Let's not forget to state where oh, we are.
1: People are listening. I'm uh, sorry.
5: Tim Haddon from Portland, Oregon. Uh, thank you, to echo everybody else, thank you for being willing to deal in your paper with some things that really could put you on thin ice with a lot of probably people you know. So thank you for doing that. Page 126, um, there was something that you mentioned that I feel, uh, I just wrote it down, I couldn't move past it, but you did under personal preferences in the uh, middle of the first paragraph, you said other preferences may involve the pastor's judgments in matters of, quote, present distress. And of course, uh, you're quoting 1 Corinthians 7, 26. Which the present distress idea, really in the last ten years, we have seen really a, a, a insurgence of this text, okay, and it's been used on really the tension between those that are letting go and those that are adding to. and so to me, this scripture creates uh, a little bit of a dynamic because. We know that in 1 Corinthians 7, a lot of Paul's personal preferences are shining forth. Uh, and even some uh, traditional denominal cultures, such as the Catholic Church, would extrapolate from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, they would move directly from Pauline preference, it is good not to marry. And they would extrapolate from that and move it directly into doctrine. Okay, So we have seen that happen. So 1 Corinthians 7 is a highly contentious, highly argued commentaries are going to be scattered. So that being said, when you mention present distress, and this is something that worries me because we have seen the tension between getting away from and adding to. I see, when I read that, Paul, when he makes it state that the Lord has never given me such commandment, and then he begins to move into... It's better not to marry virgins stay virgins because of, in the surrounding context of marriage, those that are married, those that are engaged to be married and virgins that have not been married. So it's dealing with marriage. So to me, it seems like he's expressing an ethic for a temporary situation. Yes. Okay. And so if you look at this and I'm rushing through this, I'm, I'm borrowing off of brother Blash's 60 seconds here. Um, <laughs> Persecution has begun. We know that probably when this was written around 54, we know that within 10 years, we're moving into some serious persecution. So persecution's begun. And so to me, there's this eschatological urgency or or this urgency of a present distress. And in, in one case, in light of the current troubles, I, I would say that maybe what he's saying there is, is in light of the current troubles we are currently experiencing, what? Who needs the additional burden of marriage? Who, based on the things we're struggling with, who needs the additional burden of making changes? Now, if you're already married, stay married. If you, if your wife's died, don't remarry. Okay, and so we get a lot of preferences coming through here. Here's my concern: while we can use this present distress as a means to remove traditions, okay? We also, I've watched us use this very thing to do what we condemn the other side of doing, which is getting rid of what we call safe traditions, which has led to serious decline. But I'm also seeing to where we're not looking at this as an, as an ethic for temporary situations, at what point do we stop, I guess, pushing the tension so far with this scripture to where we're not putting ethics in that are temporary. But as we currently live, there were things, as Dr. Blash talked about, the beard dynamic. And again, you have to qualify here. I teach in my church and always will. I'm, I'm going to be clean shaven. But at what point do we stop, I guess, wresting from scripture ideas to where temporary becomes permanent. Because if, if we would have taken context here, nobody's getting married. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that we use this, but it makes me nervous. And, and, and again, I know where you stand. But using this scripture in this context makes me nervous because on both sides we're using it. Some are using it to get rid of it, and others are using it to establish permanency. And things are becoming traditions which, I'm sorry, become doctrinal. I'm sorry, Brother Elder, I'm going too long. That's my question. Please address that.
2: And You, you raised you raise some very good points there. Um, I think the only way that we can mitigate the present distress uh, principle is we need to be in lockstep with a lot of God-fearing elders. Uh, my personal deal is I'm looking at what old men believe and do. I'm not looking at the mavericks and the self-appointed reformers of the apostolic faith. Yeah. I don't want to follow them. I feel safe having a pastor and elders uh, in my life and, and men that I know are not afraid to make a change when a change is called for. And so I think we've got to be careful in... Uh, uh, Solidifying what was a present distress and making it a permanent thing, obviously that 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 that's not a good thing, and it's also uh, important that we're not careful to uh, to try to lump a lot of stuff that we don't like under the present distress umbrella and try to move it out of the way, and and I know of a number of cases in my peer group where that has happened and it's been detrimental because once again a lot of our traditions are connected by a thread to a doctrine and you pull that thread hard enough the doctrine unravels with the tradition so we gotta be careful and so the only way we balance that out is we've got to have a good network and have some accountability with other strong godly god-fearing leaders
1: we're, we're going to stop here at about 20 after, so we're going to hold our questions down. I believe Pastor uh, Walker.
6: Um, unbelievable uh, presentation. It was awesome. I have a quick question for you. When you were answering um, Brother Blash's question, and comments based on the multicultural and the traditions of the, the elders or the leaders as it was written. There really is, there's no way I can be honest with myself and say that's a different culture. And so I'm going to base it It's between white or black and the facial hair in that realm because all of us, could trace our doctrinal roots through, whether it's through Lawson, all, but it's all going back to G.T. Haywood, Tobin, those men out of Indianapolis who all of them uh, had that facial hair. And so my my question here is, you you said that your personal opinion or conviction is that we must guard the traditions and And let me get off the the more, you know, controversial issues. Let's back up to it seems to me that we're guarding it when it comes to taking away. But how do I be an honest man searching biblical honesty and be willing to address these things about traditions that possibly, like for instance, we may take that we have added a second service, and we have a second service on Sunday. But there's other subtractions that we've made. Most all biblical scholarship agrees that communion would have been something that would have been happening nearly every week. You know, yes, it could I be. Agree. So how, how do I do that and still be a preservationist when I have to be traditionally honest and biblically honest at the same time?
2: Well, the, the, Bible's, the Bible takes precedent, obviously, over tradition, as I've, I've stated time and again. But once again, I've got to go back that for tradition to change, it's got to be beyond just the local church, and it's got to be widespread. And so this is where I think uh, Solomon's injunction that there's safety and a multitude of counselors Uh, comes into play. And if I'm feeling something needs to be implemented as a tradition or if I feel that something needs to be changed I don't need to do just what I think I need to do. I think I need to get a consensus from you and from other godly men and leaders and we present the issue at hand and have some discussion. And While I know that there is not Technically, another Jerusalem council on the level of Acts chapter 15. I do believe the Jerusalem council principle uh, applies, and there's times when we get together as leaders and say, Okay, we have an issue here. What do we need to do about this issue? But then that raises the question that I can't answer is who gets to sit on the council? And uh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs>
1: Pastor Allard.
7: Steve Allard, Modesto, California. Uh, Thank you, Brother Walker, for bringing up an excellent question when it comes to uh, the keeping of communion, especially as a tradition of the church, or especially the early church. And without really going into that, how did we get away from something that actually was a tradition and it was admonished by our Lord? And so we can take and we can add additional traditions that have absolutely very little except cultural push coming from them, but we can ignore what is actually in Scripture. That's one thing. However, what I'd like to just quickly make mention of is something that Brother Blash made mention of, and I see pretty well everything through the lens of missiology and intercultural studies because it has import for the world, not just from our Western standpoint. However, that's the lens we see everything through is you know, the theology of the Western Church. And when we look at this, there's, there, there, there are certainly traditions uh, that are um, held within the West, or in America especially, and then as we move uh, to other parts of the world, we begin to see they're not as widely held, and some of them are pushed back against entirely. He makes mention of um, facial hair within, uh, you know, another culture within America, However, it is much broader and wider uh, outside of America, but possibly what concerns me, and this is what I want you to quickly address because I think it's very salient that people hear where we are, and that is this. We have people that are going overseas right now, men that were are Westerners, and um, I consider myself a conservative. I come from my age, Terry's church. That's my background. However... I see people that are extremely conservative, and they're trying to go to contexts In Africa, I've worked there all of my life, and they're trying to get people to put on white shirts. And that is an absolute, they, it's, I'm fortunate they have a shirt. Number two, they try to get, without any cultural understanding, they want to take the women and have them because we believe that your hair is your covering. But African women typically wear a second covering. However, the women in our churches, we teach very strongly that a woman should not cut, trim, burn their hair. However, they still wear that second covering. But some of these same men go there and preach that they must remove that second covering. Another another thing is, uh, again, potentially, we could even talk about facial hair. Uh, We could talk about distinctively masculine clothing in some cultures and feminine clothing which meets the standard of modesty exceeds our standard of modesty but because it's different than our Western clothing we take and we apply our standard upon that I think we need to have some discussion on that and what are your views on some of those subjects Uh, When they are not clearly in the scripture, but they are widely held traditions in the American church, how do they apply within the world context, especially in the majority world?
2: Well, the overarching answer is I do not think we need to westernize all the various mission fields. And we don't need to take American things that are are, uh, strictly in the column of of our Western tradition and preferences and impose those uh, in the... And, and, and other context, it's different. I don't think we do justice to doing that. However, um, well, let me address a couple of the specifics. Let's talk about the uh, second covering. I do not believe the Bible teaches the second covering as a point of doctrine. Some do. I don't believe that. I disagree with that. However, if that is a tradition that people hold in those contexts, I don't think we need to go there and try to change that tradition. I don't see where it does any harm with the caveat as long as they are not teaching it as a doctrine. If I were the missionary stepping into an African context and they all wore the second covering, in my teaching I would say okay this is a tradition and we'll honor this tradition but this is not doctrine, this is simply tradition and I think we cover that there. As far as the um, different kinds of clothing. If I'm getting uh, your question correctly, we have uh, cultures where men and women both wear forms of robes, long flowing garments, and there's obviously a male distinctive robe and a female distinctive robe. And so then the question, when we move that over into uh, the Western context, the... The reasoning goes that if in this civilization, both men and women wear robes, and as long as the robes are different to indicate which gender they belong to, why couldn't we apply that same standard to women wearing pants in America as long as the pants appear to be feminine and different from uh, masculine? I don't agree with that because from a biblical context there were bifurcated garments there were in the king james are called linen breeches and there's several different uh, references that the bifurcated garment was always attributed to a man in any case that i can find in the bible i can't find any place where uh, women wore bifurcated garments so even though they did both wear robes in a biblical context and a lot of other contexts today I think the pants belonged to the men then and it still should be that today.
7: Just not to not to go into and I thoroughly agree with that. However, I'm speaking more of the robe on men sure. than I am speaking of, of pants on gotcha. women. So th- yeah. that that is I we, I, we can't I want argue that with
2: that the robe on men, but Jesus wore robe. Absolutely. Yeah.
7: But what I'm saying is they're actually men that are preaching and because they're coming at it from tradition. And they're bringing Western traditions into other contexts in the world. And it's creating, literally, it's creating massive confusion. And so I think that we need to have this discussion. And we need some education to go along with those that are doing ministry outside of the Western context.
2: I agree. I agree. Very much agree. Our time
1: is up. Oh, man. I do want to say this. Pastor Adams, I never saw anywhere in the scripture where God told a woman to gird up her loins like a man. What an excellent, excellent presentation. Let's all stand. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully. We're going to give you 10 minutes, but please be back because we want to give Brother Painter all the time that he needs, and we
5: have to be out of here at noon. So let's be punctual. You have a 10-minute break. God bless you.